So I'm going to ask you a question, and if you don't know what on earth I'm talking about, would you put your hand up? Just for this question, rather than for the whole sermon. All right. <laughs> put your hand up if you do not understand how you can lose a football match and still win. If you don't understand how that works, how you can lose a football match and still win. Okay. Where you been? <laughs> so you won't understand why on Wednesday, the team that lost celebrated like crazy, and the team that won were in tears. That's kind of like, it's crazy. So, those of you that now feel a little smugger about life, because these people don't care, to be honest, that you know, would someone very quickly, um, we probably need someone who's involved in football. Uh, Andrew, you're the nearest one. Um, do you want to just very quickly explain how you can lose a football match and still celebrate and, uh, no, sorry, lose a football match and celebrate and win a football match and mourn? And that, that combined score is called? Okay. So it's simple. You have two legs and an aggregate. <laughs> I think that explains everything. It is actually the accurate answer. But of course, if you're not interested, you're not bothered what a leg is. I mean, you know, apart from the obvious one. And an aggregate, if someone said they won an aggregate score, you wouldn't necessarily understand what that meant. And if you heard someone say, well, actually, if they score away from home, it's worth double what they would get at home, you might think you're in the world of Alice in Wonderland. But on Wednesday, a football team lost, but celebrated. And the team that won were in tears because of two legs and an aggregate score. Now, I could spend much more time talking about Spurs and why Spurs are the team that Jesus must, would most likely support. And if you were a Christian, that would be the team that you would support. But essentially, it's to say this. It's to say this. If you don't understand the big stories, the biggest framework, you won't understand individual events. To understand what happened in uh, the Champions League on Wednesday evening, you've got to have a big frame of understanding. Otherwise, what you're looking at is something that just looked as simple. One team won, one team lost. If you understand the biggest frame, you'll understand what looks like a paradox. We're going to read together. And uh, I'm going to read from John chapter 20. Um, and uh, it's the story of the resurrection. Um, some of you will be happy just to listen. Some of you might want to follow in your own Bible. And we all kind of end up reading from different sorts of Bibles, um, depending on the ones you prefer, the ones you brought, the one that's on your phone, the ones that is in the back of the chair. But largely, they will follow the same kind of wording. I want to pick it up, actually, although we're going to read from chapter 20. I want to pick it up at the end of chapter 19, verse 38. So if you just go back a little, a paragraph. Chapter 19, verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. 
Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That Saturday. Early on the first day of the week, Sunday, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who'd reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he'd said these things to her. And on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. It's the resurrection day. But although when we talk about it, we talk very confidently, rightly so, about the fact that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But it is a deeply confusing part of our faith. It's easy and understandable for people to go, "Eh, you're just making it up, aren't you? 
It's easy for to understand people who live all around us and maybe part of our family who go, really? Are you sure there wasn't something else going on? Are you sure they didn't just want to see Jesus? Are you sure it wasn't just like a vision? Are you sure it wasn't like they'd always hoped this and then they kind of just said it? Or even, perhaps even more, if you've read Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, are you sure the church didn't make all this sort of stuff up so it could get riches? It's, it's easy to understand why all of those reactions are there. For resurrections don't happen, do they? They're not everyday things. You and me, when we lose someone we love, you go to the creme, you go to the church, you stand by the grave, and let's be honest, none of us expect that moment them to go, I'm not dead. Not when they've been in a morgue for three days. You kind of know when people are dead and when people are not. Some people go, well, in the first century, perhaps, perhaps they didn't know they were dead. No, let's be honest. The first century people knew what dead people were and they knew what living people were. They weren't, um, they weren't burying live people. <laughs> and the resurrection, it's such a core part of our life and our faith. But it's not without its confusion. On that first morning, John tells us that there's a woman called Mary of Magdala. And she's there at the tomb. And she's not there at the tomb thinking, ah, Jesus will be alive. No, 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 quite the opposite. She's there at the tomb because she knows Jesus is dead. You don't rock up at the tomb thinking, it's empty. I'm just going to see an empty tomb. No, you come to the grave when you go, the one I love has gone. How will I cope? We don't know too much about Mary Magdalene, but of course people have tried to fill out the backdrop about her. Did you just turn me down? <laughs> Did Maggie ask you to turn me, turn me down? That's not the first time she said that. This lady, Mary, what do we know about her? Well, Mary Magdalene. Magdalene wasn't her second name, not like Neil Hudson. Magdalene was where she's from, Magdala. It was a port. It was a Roman port. It was a trading port. It was where a Roman camp was. The only thing we're really sure about Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene is that at one time her life was so torn apart that Jesus met her and Luke tells us that seven demons came out of her. It was like she was in such a mess, torn apart, so massively torn apart by the forces of evil that just ripped her completely apart. And this woman, at some stage or other, has met Jesus. And Jesus has managed, literally, to put this woman back together again. Mary Magdalene, she knows what life is like when you're ripped apart. I have no idea, and you can, 
you can fill it in if you wish, but what was life for Mary before in a Roman camp? Who knows what had happened? But she'd been a woman whose life had been torn apart and she'd met this Jesus and Jesus had put her back together again. (laughs) Most of us have not got such a dramatic past and therefore our story is not quite as dramatic in the present. But looking around today here, there's enough of us to go, do you know what? I get a sense of a bit of that story. I know what life was like when it all fell apart. And I know that somehow in ways that I can't even perhaps explain, when Jesus came, he kind of like put my life back together again. For some of us, it might have been really dramatic. It might have been really extreme. But for others of us, it was just like, no, there was just this kind of aching emptiness. And somehow when I met Jesus, it kind of made sense. You'd understand why Mary would go to the tomb because the one who'd done that was now dead. Some of you have done that yourself. You've lost people that you've loved, really loved, and you've gone to the graveyard and you've sat there. And some of you, you won't be unusual if when you've sat there, you've talked (laughs) to the person who's died. It's not unusual because actually the one you've loved has gone. And so you will sit there. Because actually, the hope's gone. Can you imagine going to your grave, the grave of the one that you love, and then seeing it completely tampered with? Can you imagine going to Agecroft? And you get there, and all you're doing is, in our context, we'd be bringing flowers or something, wouldn't we? We'd be tidying the grave. And all you want to do is sit there and remember, and all you want to do is be close to the one who meant so much to you. And can you imagine going there and then finding that someone's messed about with it? Or worse, I mean, just get a handle on this. Someone's dug it up again. Can you imagine how that would have felt? Or even worse, and I kind of I'm on the I'm on the fringe, I'm right on the boundary now of good taste. Can you imagine being at Agecroft Cemetery a few days after the death of the one you love and find that not only has someone dug down again to bring the coffin up, but they've opened the coffin. Can you imagine how that would feel? And you would go, this is, this is a nightmare. <laughs> this is the worst thing in the world that could have happened. And you would, you would tell your family, wouldn't you? You're not going to believe what's happened. They've taken his body. Now, this wasn't unusual. That's kind of probably what a grave would have looked like. If you've been to Turkey, actually, you will have seen groves like that on the, on the rock face. Uh, it's, where, um, it's where they bury people. It's where the remains go. Um, so it's, it's kind of quite likely that in a place like Turkey, which is so dry and so barren, um, that actually what you do is you, you, you create graves in the rocks. 
sounds ridiculous, but actually, there's loads of places like that. And, and, and as I said, you can wander around them in Turkey. I've done that. And you can wander and see where they put bodies. And it's probable that that would be likely the sort of place that Jesus would have been put in. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These are clearly well-to-do people and they've bought a family grave and they go and they ask Pilate for the body and they put him in, in a cave like that. And then, pretty much like that, they would get a big stone and it would be rolled across the, the grave. It stops decomposition. And, um, and Matthew will tell us that actually the Romans were really concerned that people might want to steal this body, that they put a seal on the stone itself. And they put soldiers there. It's kind of like, this body's going nowhere. Can you imagine being Mary Magdalene? And you turn up, and they've tampered with the grave, but more remarkably, the stone's been moved away. What have they done? The other thing about this, though, is that grave robbery was really common in those days. Um, that is um, a sophisticated eye test. But what that is, is um, an edict by the Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor between 44 AD and 51, so about 10 years after Jesus. And he puts out an edict that says, if you rob a grave, we will kill you. <laughs> we'll execute you. That's what that says. All right. So this edict is kind of like everything, isn't it? You only make a law if you've got to stop something happening. So grave robbery was actually quite common. And the emperor goes, if you do it, you'll end up in the same place. It's kind of like an appropriate judgment, really. <laughs> you nick a dead body, we'll make you a dead body. So when Mary gets there, all these echoes, what have they done? Where have they taken him? The other bit, just to uh, remind you, is that um, when Joseph and Nicodemus, they take the body into the grave, they've taken 35 kilograms of spices. <laughs> now, to put it into a context for you, I weigh 70. It's like carrying the top half of me. <laughs> That's quite heavy. 35 kilograms. So why would you steal a body? Well, you steal a body because you might want to, well, you might want to do all sorts of things with a dead body in terms of experiments, selling it to people who would use it, using the bones for sort of like magic potions, that sort of stuff. But what would you do? 35 kilograms, you'd nick it and you'd sell it on. They've taken his body. We don't know what they've done with it. And then these two guys come, these two younger guys. And there's, there's sort of like, in John's Gospel, um, all the way through, he, he talks about two disciples in particular. One's called Peter, we know Peter. And the other one, he just says, the one who Jesus loved. And it kind of is, it sounds a bit odd to us, but that's probably John. It's kind of like, it sounds a bit like, well, it was me. Um, almost like a bit of a boast, you know. Well, he loved me. And, um, but we kind of like... Sounds odd to us, but that's, that's essentially what's going on. And these two guys run, and John's the younger one, and Peter's the older one. And these two guys are running, and John gets there first because he's younger. But he waits, and the older one goes in. And when they get in, what they see is, John tells us, the grave clothes folded. And that makes them wonder. Because, let's be honest, if you're going to nick a body, you don't undress them. 
If you're going to steal a body, actually the clothing, which would have had some of the spices on, is actually more valuable now, so take the clothes. Don't leave them. And that was confusing. And they didn't understand what on earth was going on, and so they went home. Bewildered, disoriented. But there's a bigger story that John is wanting you to know. Do you remember this? <laughs> of course you remember. How can you lose a football match and still win? How can you win and actually grieve? Well, if you know the bigger story, there's something else happening. One of the things that happens is that wonderful encounter that Mary has. Mary's in tears, and I can, I can almost imagine it. So she's just sort of like desolate and absolutely distraught. The guys come, they see it's empty, confused as to what's going on, but oh, there's something going on. They go home. But Mary, not Mary, why would you go home? I don't want to go home. I'll stay. And she's crying. And as she's crying, she becomes aware of this bloke who's standing behind her and she thinks he's a gardener and she says and he says why are you crying and she says they've taken his body and we don't know where they've put it and in a in a brilliant piece of telling the story John says Jesus just said to her Mary Do you remember when you were a kid? And, and some of you, this, I don't know if this happens still. It probably doesn't. And it's kind of like a, a bit of a sadness really in it. But do you remember when you were a kid and you played out on the street? And, um, and, and for those of you that are sort of of a certain vintage, you know, you just all you had to do was dodge the horse and cart. And the rest of us, um, but do you remember when you played out on the street? And you could play for ages, couldn't you? You could play out long and it was getting dark. And your mother had come to the door and shout you. And you kind of, your ear was tuned to her voice and the tone of her voice. You didn't, you know, whether this was the first call or you're going to get walloped if you don't come now. But you kind of was tuned in. You kind of recognised the voice of the one that loves you. And I think that's what was going on here. And Jesus said, Mary. And she recognised his voice. And she turns and says, teacher, and... What would you do? <laughs> Come on. Of course what you'd do is you'd go, let me hug you. Of course you would. And Jesus says something that's a bit strange. He goes, okay, Mary, it's all going to be different now. Don't hug. But go tell. Go tell. Go tell the brothers that you have met me. They will not believe you, but tell them. Kay was speaking earlier. Kind of an interesting story when she was telling, I didn't, obviously I didn't know what Kay was going to say. And you listen to Kay talking about um, uh, this sort of strange story about God told me, got to Sainsbury's and there I met a nun and there my son who's severely handicapped um, found a place and 
in that place, my son was received, and a few days later he died. But as he died, for the first time, I saw him standing and looking at me. And, and you listen on and you go, I mean, it's kind of like, ooh. And it's Kay's story. And some of you would be listening on going, sounds weird. Why does God like Sainsbury's? <laughs> some of you would look on and go, really, does God do that sort of stuff? Some of you would be listening on and going, yeah, Kay, this is no reflection on you at all. Thank you for sharing it. But, you know, some people would listen to a story and go, it's just a, a mother telling a story about what something she'd want to hear. That's exactly what people thought about Mary. That's exactly what they would have thought about Mary. You can't believe these women. They're irrational. She's grieving. She thinks she's seen an angel. She thinks she's seen Jesus. You can't trust them, can you? And Jesus says, you're the one I want to use. You're the last one anyone would expect. You're the first one I want to choose. And she goes and she says, he's risen. And the guys are there going, yeah, but lock the door. Because <laughs> they might come for us next. It's great you've had this experience, but could you lock the door? And Jesus walks through the door and goes, peace be with you. And he breathes on them. And they receive the Spirit. And he tells them an amazing thing. He says, I want you to go. And I want you to go like I've gone. And I want you to forgive people. I want you to give them a chance for a start. I want you to tell them that actually they're not locked into the past. I want you to tell them that it's not final. I want you to tell them that it's, all, it's not as fixed as they might think. I want you to tell them they can be forgiven. I want you to tell them there can be life. Because if you do, they'll receive it. But if you don't tell them, how will they know? I'm nearly done. What's that bigger story? Well, you've heard it along the way. But you might not have picked up the clues. Because you don't perhaps know the bigger story. So John begins a gospel and his first three words in, a, in his gospel are, when he's trying to tell you about Jesus in order that you will believe, he starts a gospel by saying, in the beginning. And you're supposed to hear, and of course you do hear, that, the echo, everybody knows that. How's the Bible begin? In the beginning. And John begins and says, I'm going to tell you a new creation story. So when he gets here, if you've got ears, you can hear a different story, a fuller story, and you might understand something bigger. Because when Jesus is taken by Joseph and Nicodemus at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And you go, yeah, but hold it with me for a moment. And on the first day of the week, on the day when everything is new, on the first day of the week, there's someone in the garden thinking that everything's been destroyed. But there's a gardener 
in the garden, walking, looking for the people who think it's all destroyed. Does this ring a bell for any of you that have heard a different story about a garden called Eden? Where there's a garden and it all goes dreadfully wrong and there's someone who comes in the cool of the day looking for the ones he's created going, actually, come, let's, let's talk. And they're going, we're frightened of you and here... I'm not frightened of you, I just can't see you, but here in the cool of the day, can you hear my voice in the garden? And can you, and you go, I think it's a gardener. Can you hear it? And when you listen to Jesus, who is told he breathes on his disciples, which is a strange thing to do, isn't it? It's kind of, I'm not going to do it, Glenn, but if I got close enough and breathed on you, you would know what I had for tea last night. It's, it's intimate. It's kind of like, whoa, too close. <laughs> this is like a, 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 a tip for welcoming people in church. <laughs> All right. <laughs> if you're close enough that they can smell what you had for tea, you're too close. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. You might not remember, but in a garden... When God wanted to create a human, the act that creates him is when he breathes into him. What is all this about? We know a God who knows the way out of the grave. We know a God who brings new life who makes new possibilities. We know a God who announces freedom. We know a God who breathes life. We know a God who says, come and meet me because I'm looking for you. And in the garden on that first Sunday, two things happened. One was um, they had to come to terms with the fact that we've got to make sense rationally of what's gone on here. And the Christian faith is not built on a subjective experience. I think Jesus rose from the dead. I feel Jesus rose from the dead. It's true for me. It's what Charlie said earlier. And, and you know, I made the sort of the cheap, cheap joke about him being a mathematician, which he is. But it's kind of like, no, the mathematician needs to stand and says, listen, folks, if Jesus didn't die, rise from the dead, in fact, let's go home. You need that. You need the rational, hard Come on, folks, this is either true or it's false. And if it's false, we're all fooling ourselves about everything. But if it's true, who knows what might be possible? You need that. And you need others to stand and go, he met me. He met me. And that's the first day of the week. This is why we're Christians. This is what your faith is about. You'll spend a whole year working it out. This is why. This is the foundation step. Not because you feel it, but because actually we believe it's historically viable. Can you prove it? No. Is it viable? Yes. Is it reasonable? Yes. Can you encounter it? Yeah. It's warm, isn't it? Let's stand.
these folks are going to lead us in some songs and they're going to encourage us to take communion. But there's a moment, isn't there, where you go, that's for me. That's for me. Nicodemus, that guy, one of those two guys who took Jesus' body and, and they took charge of it and they used their own sort of savings for it. We, the only thing we know about Nicodemus really is that he'd come to Jesus by night once and asked him some questions and Jesus said, you can be born again. You can start again. It can all begin again for you. And here at the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus is there again. In fact, John says he was kind of like, he, he was a man of position. And so he's kind of like a secret follower of Jesus. He didn't really even want to make it massively known, but he was a secret follower of Jesus. There's a time when you go, I'm going to stand by what I believe to be true. And Nicodemus must have, it must have frightened the life out of him to go to Pilate and go, actually, can, I, can we have his body? Because they'd go, why do you want a broken body of an itinerant preacher? He means something to us. And this Easter, I need to ask you whether today is the day when you go, that's the Jesus I'm following. Don't want to be secret anymore. I want to be public. I want to be prepared to say, I'm going with this Jesus, the resurrected one. The one who doesn't always do things that I understand, but the resurrected Jesus who brings new life. That's the Jesus I want to meet. And how you do that is by simply praying, Jesus, I come to you. Thank you for your death and your resurrection, which I don't understand, but I believe changed everything. Jesus, thank you that you died for our sins, that we might not be carrying around the load of guilt and shame, but that we would be free. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose from the dead and conquered death so that we could live. And this morning, Lord, we choose to follow you. We take a step towards you to make you Lord and Savior of our lives on the basis of what you did on the cross. And we would pray with you and for you that the Spirit would rest on you, that you would know the life of Jesus in you, that the breath of God, the very life that would make you live again, would be yours. This morning, there's an opportunity for you to say, yeah, that's, that's where I'm up to. That's who I am. I want to follow Jesus. But it's kind of like being secret, but I want to be open about it. We're going to take communion in a moment or two. And as you may know, the way we do it is we come and receive it from the front. Folks will serve you. And you take it at the front and you go and sit where you are. And for some of you, it may be a time when you go, I'm taking this differently because I'm taking this as someone who wants to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. You're welcome to come 
and eat and drink. It might be that you're not there yet, in which case nobody will think badly of you for not coming. But we offer you the body and blood of Jesus, broken for you, shed for you, that you might live. And the last thing before I shut up, if you prayed that prayer or something similar, if you know that that's for you, then before you go home today, just come and tell me or tell someone that you came with. That's for me. It's kind of like the first time you'll tell someone else, I believe Jesus is alive. <laughs> so as Hannah leads us in some songs and as we begin to prepare to take communion together, let's stand and sing.